You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Pastor James Cleland. (laughs) Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin, for your support of The Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live uncommon. Pastor Cleland filling in for Sarah uh, over uh, this week and maybe maybe some in the the coming days ahead. We are so grateful for him and uh, Sarah off spending some well-deserved time off and on some adventure. But she's going to be bummed because we have some great history to cover. And we are going back to the Reverend Dr. Joel Elowski. He's professor of historical theology and coordinator of international seminary exchange programs at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Dr. Elowski, welcome back to the Coffee Hour. Uh, Thanks. It's good to be with you again. We uh, recently had a great conversation uh, about uh, St. Athanasius, um, a a recent commemoration. And there's another commemoration coming up on the calendar uh, today. And uh, we're talking about the Emperor Constantine, Christian ruler, and uh, his mother, Helena, mother of Constantine, uh, both commemorated by the church on May 21st. I am looking forward to digging into this because I've... I've not really read a lot about Constantine, and I am so grateful that we have great treasures in our church like you to enlighten yes. us on this. So, so what do we know about uh, Constantine's early life? Yeah, well, thanks for that question. And I mean, it, it seems like we're um, we're sticking in the fourth century, which is one of my favorite periods of time in the life of the church. Um, in terms of uh, Constantine, by the way, we have a document called The Life of Constantine written by Eusebius of Caesarea. So if you ever just want to kind of get a whole whole well, history of Constantine from a, a church father who thought he was the greatest thing since sliced bread. You know, you should read Eusebius because he, uh, he really liked Constantine quite a bit. And I mean, it's, a, it's kind of a refreshing thing in terms of how sometimes Constantine is viewed today, but we'll get into that maybe right, a little right. later, you know. But uh, as far as Constantine's early life, we don't have a whole lot of information except for kind of what Eusebius reports. I mean, he was probably born around the early 270s, maybe 271, 273. Uh, His dad was named Constantius. uh, And of course, as you mentioned, his mother was Helena. I always thought that some of these emperors should have got baby books because, you know, there's Constantius, Constantine, Constantine the first, second, Constantinus. So anyway, uh, he kind of uh, took after his dad that way in terms of his name. Um, He was actually uh, born in uh, Serbia, by the way. So, you know, that's area north of Greece. Um, you know, um, And I suppose, well, what's interesting about his early life, um, I, I guess one of the things, it's interesting that he probably spent a lot of the time in the East, not with his dad, but with um, Diocletian, the other emperor, who, well, the emperor at the time, who had kind of uh, divided up the empire into two, they call it actually four, the Tetrarchy, but um, he, he spent most of his early life under Diocletian and his household instead of with his dad. Um, in fact, his um, his dad, Constantius Chlorus, actually at one point um, put away his mother Helena to marry another a woman named uh, Theodora, I think her name was, uh, just because he had to make some political alliances. I don't think it had anything okay. to do with how he felt about her. But um, so he spent that time with the, in, in, in Diocletian's house, and I, I think Diocletian kind of used him as leverage against Constantius Chlorus because uh, Constantius Chlorus was a pretty powerful guy himself. So as long as Diocletian had, you know, and I'm talking throwing all these names around, I realize, but at this time there was like an emperor in the west, that's Constantius Chlorus, and there was an emperor in the east, 
um, Diocletian. He, Diocletian did this because he wanted to kind of be able to govern his uh, empire better. So you got these two emperors, which, you know, sounds good from an administrative point of view, but guess what happens? You know, people start getting jealous of each other and not trusting each other. And so I think Constantine, in some ways, in his early years was kind of like, I won't say house arrest, that's not not quite it, but he, he was used as leverage against his dad, you know, that way. And, kind of like during the medieval yeah. period, people did that. Yeah. And things. Okay. Yeah, same kind of things. But, uh, you know, he would have been brought up with all the proper education, had uh, tutors. I mean, uh, sometimes they use tutors from Africa, like, um, who am I thinking of, Lactantius, for instance, and others. So uh, he would have, you know, his education would have been pretty uh, secular, um, I think, except for the fact that his dad also seemed to be more favorable towards the Christians. I mean, you know about the Diocletian persecutions that happened uh they were around. They started in 304. Um, they right. went through 311. But even before that, you know, there were some things where the Christians were not being treated well. But in the West, under Constantius Chlorus, they actually were. And he, um, he seemed to be maybe a closet Christian. I don't know. You know. <laughs> uh, so maybe Constantine might have gotten some of that from him. Too. That's interesting. Okay. So what was going on in the empire at this point? Is it is it fractured? Is it kind of? It's not the Pax Romana anymore. Right. Well, um, it's, um, uh, you know, it's interesting because when, um, before Diocletian, there was, there was kind of an unstable period. You know, you had, I mean, think around 250 or so, you had the plague of Cyprian that uh, pretty much decimated the Roman Empire. You start having these um, different tribes that are coming from the north invading Rome and making it not as stable. You've got uh, taxation and inflation on the rise. The middle class is being shafted. I mean, sorry, I shouldn't say it that way, but they were not, you know, they were having difficulties, shall we say. Um, So Diocletian comes in around the 280s or so, and uh, he brings some stability to the empire, you know, and he brings some structure. Um, and so by the, he decides in that structure, like I said, to not only he has, um, he has an, an, a Caesar and then a, what I like to call a little Caesar on each, each side. So <laughs> I like the pizza, you know. Um, so he's got those in the West and he's got them in the East um, to kind of help with some of the administrative kind of things. And then he also um, appoints all these regional governors and things. I mean, the, it's just one big bureaucracy, but all because the Roman Empire itself had gotten so big that um, he was looking to kind of bring some stability to it. And I suppose in that sense, uh, he did. Um, but, you know, there's, um, like I said, the Diocletian persecution in 304 starts to make things um, difficult for the Christians for the next 10 years or so, or seven years. Um and what ends up happening, though, in 306, which is kind of a key event, is um, Constantius Chlorus was fighting up there in York in um, Great Britain, and he's killed. So um, what ends up happening is uh, Constantine, by this time, had escaped from Diocletian in the east and had gone to be with his dad there in the battle. And they end up claiming him then as emperor uh, in 306 at York, the military does. So he's got the military behind him at this point. I mean, and as I said, this is around 306 or so. So, um, <clears throat> and you've got, you know, then you've got him basically taking on uh, the competition for the next 10 years or so <clears throat> as he fights off different uh, different challenges to the uh, throne. Uh, you've still got the embers in the east that he has to deal with. Probably the most famous thing, though, is the battle with Maxentius. Uh, at the Milvian Bridge, you may have heard of this. Um, yes, is this where he has the vision? 
Yes, that's right. He uh, okay. he has this dream and he has a vision and he sees um, you know the a cross up in the sky and uh, even here here's in Latin by this uh, sign you will conquer, and uh, <clears throat> so uh, he believes the vision. He believes the dream and uh, in fact he even puts it on his uh, soldiers' uh, shields, you know, so that he can. Um, well, that's the sign by which he conquers. And, um, and back in the ancient world, um, if you had the gods on your side, that meant that uh, you would prevail. But in his case, he recognized, um, well, I don't, we don't know what he recognized and when he recognized it, but um, he seems to have changed kind of his attitude a bit in terms of that some say he previously was a worshiper of the sun god, but now he's worshiping the son of God, you know, after this. But that's one of those things that scholars like to debate about how, um, you know, how thorough was his conversion, shall we say. Right, right. So what was significant in his life that led to him being commemorated by the church? Right. I don't think it was so much the, the battles, <laughs> you know, and all of that. Um, it has, a, there's a couple of things. I mean, in 313, he issues this edict of Milan, you know, that um, basically tells the Christians that, you know, that they're no longer to be, per- well, the Christians are no longer to be persecuted. Um, they, uh, there was a previous edict under Galerius in 311 called the, you know, like an edict of toleration. So things change dramatically for Christians in the sense that they're no longer being, um, you know, put to death. They're no longer being sent to the mines, but rather Constantine sees, um, treats them favorably. Even Uh, he does not make Christianity, the religion of the empire. This is what is often kind of, you know, said that he did that actually happened under Theodosius later around 381 or so, but he does make it, give it kind of favored status. Um, including the fact that, um, for instance, clergy didn't have to pay taxes. They didn't have to serve in the military. You know, um, He also recognized that many of the churches had been confiscated by the government, and he, he not only returned them, he rebuilt some of them and um, actually refurbished them and gave uh, lavish gifts to um, provide for their care. Um, so those are all aspects of his early kind of uh, reign that I think – the church looked at quite favorably because now, you know, kind of everything has changed and people are starting to look at the church in a way that's attractive, shall we say, and for their social life, which of course brings both good and bad aspects to it um, in terms of some people looking at joining the church so they can get ahead socially and politically and uh, maybe even economically. Um, but then there's the other side of it too, that uh, lots of people are, are true converts as well. But if I had to pick like the number one thing that I think he um, is known for, at least um, for us theologians, we love him because he uh, called the Council of uh, Nicaea in 325 to deal with the issue of uh, Arius. So um, that's probably what he's he's most known for in our circles, you know, the fact of calling that council. Hmm. Just a little bit, we'll talk about his mother as well. Uh, But before we get to her, uh, were there others who influenced him? We, we know that uh, his mother certainly had a great influence on, on Constantine. Were there others that, that you think had a great influence on Constantine? Well, I, I think um, the Eusebius is, this is another one of those cases where they needed the baby book because there's a Eusebius of Caesarea, but there's also a Eusebius of Vercelli, and then there's a Eusebius of Nicomedia. These all, uh, Eusebius of Caesarea was the one who wrote the history about Constantine, and so he was influential. Um, you know, he um, 
he probably was able to talk with Constantine a fair bit about life in the church and things, but I suppose it probably was his home pastor there up in uh, Nicomedia where the uh, where Constantine had his residence. Um, I, I suppose Eusebius of Nicomedia had a an influence, especially after the Council of Nicaea. You know, I mean, you know that the Council of Nicaea was where they decided the issue of the Arian controversy, um, and Constantine confirmed that initially. But then, um, then he kind of uh, kind of went back and forth on it, and I think Eusebius of Nicomedia actually was able to influence him quite a bit in terms of actually um, bringing Arius back from his exile, banishment, and even um, Constantine himself getting baptized on his deathbed uh, in around 337 by this Arian bishop. So, um, you know, Constantine has a, it's an interesting history. So you ask about influence. I mean, there's Orthodox influence, but later in his life, there was also that Arian influence that um, I think for some of us is rather frustrating because, uh, well, you know, the Nicene Council should have settled everything, but uh, it didn't end up doing that. We have more to learn about Constantine and his mother as well. We're talking with Reverend Dr. Joel Ilowski today. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Pastor James Cleland. You're a miracle. You know that, right? A living, breathing, one-of-a-kind miracle. You were created to stand apart, to share your gifts in the service of others, to make an uncommon impact in a common world. And at Concordia University, it's our mission to help you do that, to live uncommon. To learn more about Concordia, go to cuw.edu. Welcome back to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Pastor James Cleland. Today we're talking with the Reverend Dr. Joel Ilowski, Professor of Historical Theology and Coordinator of International Seminary Exchange Program at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. And a great resource for us when we're talking yeah. about uh, commemorations of the church. Today we're talking about Constantine. And now uh, moving on to the Emperor Constantine's mother, uh, Helena. Um, Dr. Ilowski, what do we know about uh, Helena, the mother of Constantine? Right, yeah. Well, um... First of all, we know she's um, she's somebody who the, the Greek and Latin churches still think about to this day. They commemorate her, so she um, has obviously some real importance for them. Uh, she was born probably um, in Bithynia um, in a, at a town called Deprenum, Deprenum, I think we'd say it like that. Um, and it's interesting that her son got to rename the town for her. I mean, I'd love to do this for my mom, you know. He, he called it Helenopolis, you know. So, uh, you know, she um, she probably came from um, pretty poor background, or at least they say like humble origins that way. Um, you know, not any wealth or anything like that. Um, and in fact, um, you know, we know that uh, she became the wife of um, well of of Constantius Chlorus, but. Um, she was also, you know, was she his wife or was she his concubine? That's one of the things we we don't quite know which way to, to say about that. Uh, but um, as I said, you know, she, and I told you that she had gotten sent away um, so that he could marry and make a political marriage out of it. But um, what's interesting is that af- after her husband died, um, you know, she was she got to go back to, um, well, I mean, her, her son, Constantine, actually brought her back. Uh, 
uh, we called her the Cornet Trier, where uh, he actually had been for some time. And uh, so then she was able to go back to Rome and, um, you know, um, live her life there and um, kind of be the emperor's uh, mother, um, even as her husband no longer was around. But she, um, she and Constantine seemed to have been pretty close that way. Um, you know, and you wonder one of the things, um, where did Constantine get his, his faith from? Right, right. Um, I don't think he really got it from his mother, at least according to Eusebius, it was the other way around that he kind of brought her to faith a bit. Um, you know, and so that's one of those things, I don't know, I suppose you could go, the historians might go either way on that, but um, the fact that, uh, you know, with her kind of background and recognizing Constantius Chloris as kind of, um, well, at least sympathy towards Christianity, then um, she came full circle, shall we say, so that by the time we're talking you know, in the 320s, um, she's a very committed Christian. Um, and in fact, um, towards the end of her life, uh, she decided she wanted to make a pilgrimage. And this pilgrimage would, uh, was to the holy place of Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem at this time was just starting to get back on its feet. I mean, Hadrian had basically made it into a, you know, kind of a backwater town, a pagan town for a century or so. So, um, <clears throat> So she um, decided she wanted to go there, and the places where um, where the key events of Christ's life, uh, they were actually marked out because Hadrian had put temples. I think I mentioned this with Athanasius earlier, that they had um, put temples on to the pagan gods in each of those places. So oh, the wow. Christians could actually find, you know, where, let's say, Golgotha was, for instance, or Bethlehem, and, you know, where Christ was born and these things. Or at least that's what, you know, the tradition had said before. So, um does, yeah, she, does she end up um, building any churches there? I, th I think I remember hearing stories of her, almost like an Indiana Jones, like finding sites and unearthing things and and, and helping build churches, etc. Yeah, I think she even wore a fedora, just like he did, you know, with a whip. Yeah. And she, you know, yeah, and she uh, she came out. Actually, I mean, the, the one that, and, and this was already kind of preserved by St. Ambrose, this story that, um, you know, she was um, taken up onto, onto Golgotha. Um, while she was there looking around as she discovered a piece of wood that she believed was uh, a piece of wood of the cross. And um, so she actually, they have a church, um, and then they built a church on that spot, you know, and they built the Church of the Resurrection. And um, she was instrumental in her son building a number of churches there in Jerusalem, but also back in Rome, too. Um, and, of course, the, the, the church today is called Santa Croce, where... Um, you know, in Rome, where she actually put that um, piece of the cross. Um, of course, what's what's interesting about that afterwards is there are so many pieces of the cross found that they probably could build a cathedral, but that's right. another issue. <laughs> okay, so what kind of, I get the legacy that she had, that's, that's kind of a really cool one. What kind of legacy do we have for Constantine himself? I, one of the terms I've heard thrown around is Constantinianism. Mm -hmm. um, can you explain what that is? Because I'm still a little confused. Yeah, well, in fact, there's even a book out there called Defending Constantine by my friend Peter Lightheart, where he uh, he felt um, Constantine needed a bit of defending in the sense of, you know, just what is his legacy? Because uh, when he, he kind of aligns the church with the empire pretty closely, I mean, he's right. even kind of, kind of called like a bishop of the, uh, I forget what the term is, but it's like a um, bishop of the, those outside, um, 
Yeah, what was that? So anyway, um, those outside of the church, uh, he was their bishop in a sense. Um, so you have him giving you know breaks to the Christian clergy. You have him building churches. You have him um, even like establishing Sunday as a day of rest. Mm-hmm. He you know he is involved with that as well. Um, and these kind of things. So I suppose. But the other side of it is, well, you know, did he make the relationship a little too close? And the fact that, um, you know, the church seems to um, almost be, um, well, uh, taken over by the empire in some ways, or co-opted, maybe that's the term, you know. And so was Constantine good for the church? Well, you know, um, the jury's still out on that in the sense of the fact that uh, they did become that closely aligned, I suppose. But the other side of it is, you know, that... um, I mean, when you see him at the Council of uh, Nicaea, for instance, you can see that he was a person who definitely cared about the faith. I mean, he himself asked some questions at the council at times, even though he, you know, he would defer to the bishops. But uh, and he's probably the person responsible to get the the term homoousius, you know, one substance uh, with the father that we use in the creed. He's probably the one who was instrumental in getting that in. A, and introduced through his um, Bishop Hosius of Cordoba from Spain. So, you know, there are those who would say that the church basically, after Constantine, went downhill because it got so aligned with the state that it pretty much, you know, became kind of, it lost that kind of edge that it had before Constantine. Um, but the other side sees that really um, he was he was instrumental in helping to solve, resolve probably one of the key issues of the early church in dealing with Arianism and um, the fact that he uh, he did provide for the churches um, many of the things that we now take for granted in terms of structures and um, um, favoritism in some ways, I suppose. So, um, you know, what I, what I would say, I suppose, is it depends on what your concerns are <laughs> uh, to a certain degree. So that's not a very satisfactory answer, is it? <laughs> very helpful. There was a, a good nugget in there of the uh, the term, and I won't try to repeat it because I'm sure I'll mispronounce it. That was, uh, it was homo... Yeah, the homoousius. Homoousius. Yeah. yeah. That, that, Which I mean, basically means of the same essence. Mm-hmm. You, know, mm-hmm. you mentioned other things like that, uh, that, his legacy impacts that we perhaps are, uh, that we take for granted. What's even just one thing that, uh, if you were to look around today, you would say, wow, that has a, that we have that, or that was significantly impacted by, uh, Constantine's leadership. Hmm. Well, I mean, just for my own personal kind of thing, I, I, his edifice evangelism, as I call it, <laughs> just in the sense of uh, what what kind of a building program he did do, you know, um, and and kind of established the these beautiful um, these beautiful churches uh, to glorify and give praise to God. Which again, of course, some people would see that as well. You know, then they stopped taking care of the poor and these other things, which I suppose is not true. But I would I would put that as one thing, and then the other would be just the the fact that. Um, you know, um, kind of this relationship between, uh, well, looking to the churches. Um, well, yeah, that's important. Probably more of a negative thing. I better not go there. Um, yeah, let's leave it at the edifice evangelism, and um, I suppose, and the aspects of just the beauty that um, you know is associated with worship and life, and how Constantine was, and his mother both, you know, felt that this was an important aspect of of church life that um, they wanted to give glory to God. And he shows the life of a sanctified layman 
who, um, you know, really sought to serve his Lord in his vocation. I, I do think that he was a genuine convert. I mean, some don't think so because he, he saved his baptism until his deathbed. But, you know, most of them did that because they felt that sins committed after baptism couldn't be forgiven in some cases. So I think that's more of the reason he did it. But, okay. Um, yeah. Hmm. Very good. Well, thank you for the insights. And man, such a great history yeah, lesson right you. there. Now now you're excited about taking a class with Dr. I Lasky, am. I am. I'm going to ask a lot of questions about Constantine. <laughs> well, there you go. Reverend Dr. Joel Ilowski, professor of historical theology and coordinator of the International Seminary Exchange Programs at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Dr. Ilowski, thanks so much for being our guest on The Coffee Hour. Well, thanks. My pleasure. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Pastor James Cleland. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime. Anywhere. Anywhere.